Hello everyone, my name is Cliff Duvinois, and after 20 years I've returned to my native Michigan and in my quest to reconnect with our great state, I want to talk to the leaders that are behind Michigan's top destinations. I'm going to learn more about them and the great experiences they and their team provide all of us Michiganders, and perhaps I'll learn a few things along the way. Welcome to the Call of Leadership podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Cliff Duvinois. And today we're going to be talking about one of those winter activities that's become a staple or a mainstay in our Michigan community. And that would be the Zenders Snowfest that happens every single year. And to talk to us today is going to be the Vice President of Sales and Marketing for Zenders. That would be John Shelton. John, how are you? Doing great, Cliff. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me on the show. Excellent. Thanks for taking the time to be here. I know you guys have been very busy with all this COVID activity going on. But before we jump into that, why don't you tell us where you're from? Where did you grow up? Well, I am originally from Buffalo, New York, as we are born and raised. And I have been in Frankenmuth since 1988. But my connection to Frankenmuth is through my wife, Martha Zender Shelton. And we met in college at Valparaiso University back in 1976. And we were married in June of 1986. And I actually started my uh, hospitality career at, with Hyatt Hotels and uh, kind of traveled all over the United States and uh, became director of sales at uh, Hyatt in Flint, Michigan in 1988. And I joined Zenders in January of 1991 and obviously have been here ever since. Now, why did you choose to go into the hospitality business? You know what, Cliff? It's one of those things. I don't think I chose to do that. I think the hospitality business chose me. And it's just one of those, you know, <laughs> it's one of those things, you know, I had after graduating from Valparaiso University, I have a degree in business administration. I had no idea what I wanted to do with myself after college. But my wife now, my girlfriend at the time, Martha, was getting another degree at UNLV. And so I went to visit her after college, after he graduated, and I kind of went to New York City, which uh, working uh, with a relative and just decided to go visit uh, her in Las Vegas. And it was February and it was 75 degrees in Las Vegas. And I think it was about 15 degrees in New York. And I'm like, you know what? I think I might want to move here. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And so she was going to school and, you know, in Vegas, I mean, that's the industry. So it was just ironically, the timing happened to be the Las Vegas Hilton and the MGM Grand at the time had just come through some major tragedies of fires and they were looking for people. And one of those things, right place at the right time. And they were jobs that were paying well and I needed a job at the time. And so I just, I'll never forget a guy named Lloyd Boothby was the vice president of sales for the MGM hotel. I just walked into his office one day and said, hey, I think I would be great at hotel sales. And he kind of said, you know what? I like your spunk, but you don't know anything about the industry. If you're willing to take a job at the front desk or reservations, I think we need people. And that's how it started. And I'll never, I took a job in reservations. My first boss in the hotel industry was a tough Jewish lady named Joni Clayton from New York. And I kind of liked it. And, but I didn't, and, and I loved the experience I was getting, but I just wasn't satisfied because in my mind, I was like, well, wait a minute, I didn't really go to college. There's nothing wrong with being what I was doing, but I wanted more. So I started reading more about the industry and I kept reading about Hyatt Hotels, how they were a very young, progressive company and looking for good people. And 
I just started writing letters and I had my uh, interview with the lady out of Los Angeles, Sherry Laveroni, and she was impressed with me and she made some phone calls on my behalf and eventually got a job at the Hyatt Regency in Oakland, California, and working for one of my first mentors, Deidre McMillan. And my whole goal at that time, Cliff, was just to get about a year's experience, because as I was interviewing, trying to get into the industry, everybody was saying, either I was overqualified, or I was underqualified. Oh, yeah. It was very frustrating. And, but, you know, it just, I, I just ref- reflect back on my business history, and it always boils down to somebody has to take a chance on you, and then somebody has to mentor you. And I worked very hard, and I took all the advice I could get, and I learned from everybody that I could. And uh, so I was like, I was like a sponge. I just wanted to absorb it as much as I could. And people kept telling me, hey, we think you have potential to really do well in this industry. They loved my personality. And I was, and I played, I played sports all my life. I was a student, a student athlete at Valpo. So I was always into competing and hotel sales was about, you know, hey, be the best in competing. So long story short, I, 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 Left uh, Las Vegas, started a job at the Hyatt Regency Oakland, as I mentioned, worked my way up, got transferred to the Hyatt Regency Atlanta. At the same time, my wife was in the industry. She had worked for Hyatt when we were in Atlanta, but prior to that, she was working in Napa Valley. And so she worked with Hyatt in San Francisco, Silverado Country Club in Napa Valley. We got married. I get transferred. She comes there. I'm in Atlanta 15 months because I was all in this, I was part of what they call the rising star program. And I knew I was going to be a director of sales. And so I had promised my wife, if, you know, let's go to land, I'm not going to be there long. I'm going to ask to come back to Michigan. It is either Dearborn or Flint and ideally Flint because my wife wanted to come back home. And so she was looking to get made, get back into the family business. And it just worked out for us. So I, I, I started at the Hyatt Regency in Flint in 1988. And as I mentioned, uh, then we, Hyatt left that property and they were transferring me to Bethesda, Maryland. I was going to go open up the new Hyatt Regency Hotel in Bethesda, Maryland. And they were going to bring my wife because they she had worked with the company. But they were offering me a 10% increase in salary. But I was moving to a an area that had a 40% increase in the cost of living. And Whoa. the math just didn't add up to me, Cliff. And so and it just happened to be the time in our, in, in our business here at Zenders uh, that my brother-in-law, Al Zender, our CEO, I was looking to expand. He was just had become the new president. My father-in-law was retiring and Al was elevated to CEO president of the company. And he had a vision. And as I was working for Hyatt, we sat down one day and he just goes, hey, I'm looking for, I need a sales direction. And we just don't have that right now in our company. And I really wasn't looking to leave Hyatt. And so he kind of made me like the godfather, an offer I couldn't refuse. I <laughs> and it was one of the best decisions ever made. And I, doing that, and I can remember that, that, you know, one thing I've always commended our family, they were always very professional. I had to still send in my resume. I had to make an appointment with his executive secretary. And so he never looked at me as his, as his brother-in-law. He looked at me as potential director of sales for the company. And we sat down, had a great discussion. And I said, I want this, this, and this, thinking he was going to say no. And we would just move on and still get along great. He said yes. And I didn't have an answer for yes. Other than, <laughs> okay. I guess I'll start. And I've been, like I said, I started, I've been here going on 30 years now. So yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And I was just thinking about the, because when you talk about working for a company like a Hyatt, right, you have that large brand recognition. Most people think 
like the ultimate in in stability. You know, the company's going to be there tomorrow. It's going to be the next day. And you chose to leave that giant corporate structure for, you know, in the grand scheme of things, a, a much smaller family business. Is there some appeal to being David versus Goliath? Yeah, with the David versus the Goliath, with being Goliath, that big corporate setting, I saw a lot of good people. I mean, it, it's it was very, very competitive. And there's a lot of people that had ambition. And sometimes it became even a little cutthroat. And it wasn't what you saw. As long as you produced, you were one of the guys. The moment you stopped producing in their minds, you became expendable. I saw a lot of good people let go. So it was very stressful, but I, I didn't really bother me because I, I was always producing. But what happened was, you know, you know, life is all about timing. And my wife and I had really reached a point, I think maybe, I think I was 31 at the time, that I got tired of moving around. I had moved three times in six years. I had moved from Las Vegas to San Francisco Bay Area, from San Francisco Bay Area to Atlanta, Georgia, from Atlanta, Georgia to Flint, Frankenmuth, Michigan, and now they were talking about where now we're going to move you to Maryland. And the whole concept with Hyatt was the more moves you made, the more money you can make, you get promoted. Yes. And now I have a young family. I, we had our first child. So you start thinking about, wait a minute, okay, long term, I got to have a place I want to call home. And being here in Michigan and Frankenmuth, we had a tremendous support system. I mean, her, her, my, my in-laws, my whole family, my wife's whole family was here. So it was, you know, my mother-in-law was more than happy to look this, help us out with, with, with our first son, their, her grandchild. And so it just made it easier. I mean, because with Hyatt, I mean, I'm trying to find daycares. I didn't have the same, same personal support uh, system that right. uh, a family business. Now, that's, that's the pro. Now, there's, a, there's always cons when you're working for, quote unquote, a small family business. But I think what was very helpful for me, Cliff, when I took the job, my mother-in-law, Marion Zender, called me in her office. She goes, hey, I want to talk to you. Yeah, we'll talk. She goes, look, let me just tell you how this works. For you to continue to be successful, you have to learn this lesson. And so I'm like, okay, as much as we love each other and as much as we spend time together and we work, eat and play together, literally, when you go home, don't take work home. Nice. So, okay. And so, although it's it's hard to not do that, I understood what she was saying that, hey, when you leave this building, so don't take what happened in the building home with you. And so, and then also, you know, it's like, you know, and, and the business decisions don't take them personally. So that advice was always kind of helpful philosophically, but, and then you guys, you grow through it. It's like, you know, I mean, we, the, the, the restaurant, the golf course we have, the Fortress, Gender Splash Village, we all understand how important those businesses are for us to be successful in. But what I learned right away, we were making decisions, which I like. No one was above somebody else. No family member was more important than another family member. And everything was done by literally unanimous consensus. And we, it was great because we, we all get along. So that was, you know, so the transition for me wasn't that hard. And so I, it, and then what, what this gave me that something Hyatt never could give me ownership. Nice. And when you own things, Cliff, you look at it a, a lot differently than when you don't own it. And so 
I, I loved Hyatt. I had a great career with Hyatt. I have some still dear friends with Hyatt. I learned a lot, but this was probably, this has been from a professional standpoint, one of the best decisions I ever made because I was able to just like Snowfest. I mean, that was an idea that was brought to me and lo and behold, my brother-in-law said, why don't you, you think it can work, make it work for us. So we don't have a lot of red tape here. We can get things done right away. Yes. When that corporate setting, you have these layers of, of communication. You have these layers of trying to get things done that by the time somebody decides you've lost that opportunity because we waited too late. So, you know, there is no red tape. I guess if there is, I'm the red tape. We can we can <laughs> we can huddle anytime you want and say, hey, what do you think? Let's make this happen. So that's how you see like, you know, when I first started here, there was no Splash Village. And so to kind of put it into perspective, I'll ask you this question. What do you think is the second largest department we have at Zenders? Wow. Interesting. I would say, man, if I were to guess. I'm gonna get, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, if I were to guess off the top of my head, because you know what it's going to be? It's going to be something that it's not obvious just by asking that question. Okay. So I'm just going to say your marketing team. We only got about, we have four or five people. Yeah. Our, our second largest department in the company didn't even exist 15 years ago. Oh, wow. Our, our largest department is our wait staff, which makes sense, yes. right? Yep, yep. Second largest department, lifeguards. So that's something I did not think about. No. Think about that. Yes, yeah, the largest, the second largest department we have in our entire company is the lifeguards, the lifeguard staff. I think we keep about about eighty to one hundred people Dang. or lifeguards that, but nice. in season we'll be busy. But so, but the point of that is, is we were able to take something that didn't exist until two thousand and five. So it tells it tells you from an innovative, creative. That's what I like about the like about the business and our company. I get around to sit around the table as a board member, as a family member, as a leadership of of our company to help create those type of things. I could never have gotten that with Kyat. Regardless of how high I might have ascended, I never would have been able to have that type of ground floor impact you know, that when, I have at Zenders. Yeah, I was thinking of uh, my experience with dealing with both large and small companies. The smaller companies are way more nimble. If you got an idea, you can execute on it right away. Like you said, you're not having to go through 20 different layers of approval or management. And I, and I think that you know a lot of people discount that. You know, and it's it's actually one of your biggest advantages. Yes, you are small, but at the same point in time, you can execute on ideas much, much quicker than your bigger competitors. And speaking of executing on ideas, I want to talk about the genesis of Snowfest, because I seem to be hearing different versions of how Snowfest came about. What how did how did Snowfest how did the idea even come about in the first place? All right. So full transparency. Okay. We did not create the concept of Snowfest, there was a gentleman named Bill Doring, I believe it was, I, I maybe mispronounced it, and Pete Rumsey. They were snow carvers, and this in mid-Michigan. And I'm gonna say, Cliff, back in like 1990, I wasn't even with the company at the time. I was living in Frankenmuth, but I was working for Hyde and Flint, but I didn't work for Zenders. And they approached Zenders to, hey, they were having this snow carving event, on Ojibwe Island in Saginaw. And could you be a sponsor? Long story short, I think we, we gave them $500. Hey guys, good luck with what you're trying to do. 
here's $500, put our name out there. You know, we do a lot of community type of things. We donate to a lot of different causes. Sure. For whatever reason, they gravitated to that cause. You jump ahead a year later, I'm now on board. I've been working at Zenders all of maybe 35, less than two months. I'm just trying to get my feet together, trying to put my team together, trying to figure out, because we didn't have a marketing department. I created it. And so, and and my brother-in-law was doing more of the sales side of it, but he goes, hey, I've got other things I need. That's why I came on board. He goes, I need somebody to run this. I have a vision, but I can't do this by myself. So anyway, so this Bill gentleman that we had supported came to our offices and says he has this, he had just opened up a business in town and says, I have, I'm a snow carver. I do this. I've gone all over the country. My partner and I, we've been doing this event on the Jibway Island, but we haven't really gotten a lot of support and nobody really comes to it. the way it was set up. People would just kind of drive around it. There was not much interaction with it. And so he was saying, Hey, I I have a business in town now. I think I can bring this concept to Frankenmuth, and but I need thirty thousand dollars. I'm like, okay. And go, well, let me get back with you. And so I <laughs> sat down. I sat down with Al, my brother-in-law, and we kind of talked about it. And he asked, he just pointed. I can remember just him point blankly asked me, "Do you think it can work?" He goes, "Well, the sky's telling me we'll have like sixty thousand people here." Now you have to understand. The content of this conversation. This was for January, and traditionally, the mindset of the paradigm at in Frankenmuth, so not just Zenders, it's the winter time, shut down, yes. minimize minimize your expenses because there is no revenue. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm the new guy. I've been on board less than sixty days, and I've coming from a very aggressive sales uh, philosophy with Hyatt, and it was always about dry revenue. So I'm thinking like, well, why can't we drive revenue? But I'm being told, because we've never had it, just can't be done. So then I'm saying, well, I've got an idea because this guy's telling me he can bring 60,000 people to Frankenmuth. And in my mind, that's going to be a lot of revenue for us. So my brother-in-law, he's, long story short, he, he tells me, well, go ahead. Now, just think, I think at the time I was 31, he was 35. <laughs> yeah. And I can remember him facetiously saying, We've spent money on hokier things. And he basically told me, go for it. So I tell this Bill guy, and I, I, I don't know the guy, but he's got a business in town. I go, here's the deal. We'll front this, but I run the show. Okay. I, I set all the rules. You got to tell me what to do. And so that was our agreement. Okay. Cool. So we were the major sponsor. Then we had a couple local businesses like Bronner's. I reached out to and Gary McClellan. And Gary McClellan and McClellan, that's like Zach's uh, fudge shop, yes. and the candy store, and those uh, the woolen mill and the White House. Those those are like the McClellan properties. And uh, and Gary and he goes, you know what, man? He started laughing at me. And it and he goes, all right, John, I'm going to help you out. And he goes, I'm going to help support this, but I'm just going to tell you, you can't get Jesus Christ to come to Frank within <laughs> just what he told me. Okay, <laughs> all right, so. I get with Bill. Long story short, again, we have Snowfest. Now, Cliff, I have no idea what I'm doing. Right. I'm trusting this guy. We created these forms. He showed us how to build these cubes. We, we put a bunch of, we scraped up snow from from the parking lots in town. We have a front end loader that a guy, Bob Kirk, Crick, Bob Crick helped us get. So we're kind of just piecing and milling this together. 
it took us two weeks to set up like eight snow blocks. Okay. Cause we did it all manually. We had no right. idea what we, but what Bill knew, he knew the carvers. So he got just a bunch of his friends to show up. We, so I start marking this, Hey, well, here's what we're doing. And we literally had then John Zinder, our food and beverage director and executive chef. He just got some of his culinary buddies that he knew that did ice carvers. You know, you go to a nice buffet and there's a nice ice carver yes. on the table. Yep. Well, he knew guys that did that. So we had nine of those. Nice. Literally on our front grass. And that was Snowfest. And we had about 80,000 people come here. Sweet. We got our butts kicked. We were so understaffed. And in our, <laughs> in our, in our minds, Cliff, we simply said if we had like 5,000 people over the weekend. We'd we be happy. Extend. And people like people like our, our, our relatives across the street, they they went on vacation. We just got hammered. We were just so unprepared. But it was like fantastic. Businesses were happy. But then some of the carvers were saying, well, you know, Pete, Bill promised us this and we were supposed to get paid this. Now, we didn't mind paying it out because we were successful. Right. But I didn't like that. that that's not how I did business. I don't like surprises. Yeah. And so... Then Pete Rumsey, who was a, a art teacher that was Bill's partner in snow carving, after it all said and done the first year, probably about a, a month after the event, he asked to speak with me. And he just said, hey, Bill's no longer, I'm not affiliated with Bill anymore. I don't like how he does business. Bill eventually lost his business in town. And, but Pete goes, I'm an art teacher. I go, what you have here can be tremendous. I like to work with you. And I go, okay. And we created this association. But during that first Snowfest, you know, my son now, who works in our company, he was, Nick was two, and my son Bradford was maybe four. And I remember walking around. We're all excited, people everywhere. And they kept complaining. And they kept complaining that they were cold. And I don't know why, Cliff, this light bulb went off. And I said, okay, I know. Because as much as I enjoyed looking at the ice and snow, I could only do that for so much. Right. And in my mind, it just clicked. I thought right away as a parent, if my two kids are whining, okay, for lack of better words, and complaining that this isn't fun, I'm sure I'm not the only parent experiencing this right now. Right. And so it just hit me. If I can keep these two kids happy, we've got a winner. So that's when we started the warming tent. We started having the petting zoo. I think the next year we had fireworks. So my whole entertainment mode came to being like, wait a minute, we can do more. Everybody loves this snow because it was more than just a snowman. This was great art. And so Pete says, I'll get teams for you. We'll work together. We create an association. And I said, okay, I run this show. I don't want any surprises. We're going to do a P&L. We're going to forecast what our revenues are going to be. And we're going to outline what we think our expenses and I'll go and I'll get, I'll raise the money. Obviously, Zender's always being the title sponsor. And we'll put in the most, but we'll go around. And so then we start getting carvers. We had to, so by year year three, oh, we had teams from Italy, Germany. We nice. did a whole international division. It just blew up. And the pun intended, it snowballed on us. So between, then we start having our own internal committee. But I just saw it. It was like, okay, we've got something here. And, but I've got it. So really what I brought to the Snowfest is the entertainment. I always say like, okay, I tried to bring the charisma to it, the dog and pony show. Cause I knew nothing about the artwork part of it, but I relied on, we relied on Pete to do that for us. And gosh, I mean, so 
that was a marriage made in heaven for until Pete retired for about 20, 20 plus years, if not 25 years. We just made it work. And I just got, then when I say I, our committee, we got more people involved that, that work at Zenders. And we had originally the original committee, we had a couple non-Zenders employees. Then we were like, nah, you know what? This is our baby. We're going to, only non-Zender employee is going to be Pete. And because we had a vision of how we wanted to run it. And sometimes some of the community people that were on our board or our committee should say, didn't have that same vision. So I got to be honest with you. We just, I didn't, I don't want to say I got rid of them, but we just say, hey, we can take it from here. And if you want to support us, that's great. So we've always, so it really started out, Cliff, as a business opportunity. And the first two or three years, it was about how are we going to grow our business? We were making money and everybody in town was making money. That's no, everybody loved it. And everybody's willing to support it from a business standpoint. But then I started thinking, let's expand this out more to make it more of a community event. So that's when we started getting school kids involved. Hmm. We started doing like field trips. We created the high school division. Then I started thinking like, well, how do we perpetuate this art form to younger people? And really it became the kind of like the training ground for other divisions. So we, for example, we started with our kids division. Those kids ended up being in our high school division. When they got out of high school, they got into our state division. So we've actually had people that have competed. Now, I will tell you, when we started our high school division, I don't know his last name, but he was an art teacher at Millington High School. First name was Chuck. Chuck bought into it. He loved it. And for like the first three or four years, Millington was the best teams we had. He got them jackets and they had these great, (laughs) they had had Carhartt jackets with Millington snow sculpting team on the back of it. So Chuck took it to another level. Now other high schools saw what he was doing. So those art teachers took it to another level. And how we got the art, the schools involved with it, we said we would, if you give us a team and there's no cost to you, but we'll donate back to your art program for your high schools. And every team, every person would get a certificate. So it was like, they loved it. And it was like, hey, we don't get to So they turned it into a educational opportunity for their schools. And then I, I can tell you, we have schools to this day, but we have schools that it's where the teachers tell me the kids take it seriously and they compete to get on the team. Well, nice. And so that's how that also, so I, I went from more of a, like, this is a great business opportunity, business model to making more of a hybrid business model and community model. And how do we get the community behind it? And how do we get more people from the community involved in it? And that just kind of started happening over over time. As I said, we just started adding different components to the snow and ice carving competitions and involving younger adults. And really that helped us sustain people as they got older, it gave them a chance to stay with it instead of just saying, we, so we just introduced people to this art form at an early age. And a lot of them carried on. And I have people come up to that have competed. Their kids are now competing. That's cool. It's very, yeah. So it's been very, very gratifying to watch how this kind of, this from its infancy to, I'll just say now, adulthood of watching how this whole thing has come together over the last 30 years. And, you know, so so the the common denominator has been myself, Linda Kelly. We're the two last remaining charter committee members. John Zender just retired. And then we had Scott Watkins, who was always in charge of our setup. He was our golf course superintendent. 
but then his assistant. So we've been able to use the talent of our company to make this continue to grow. But here's what's also interesting. Once we saw the success and, and it became really big and we raised a lot of money. And then when I say raise a lot of money, it takes a lot of money to put this on. Yes. And then we got the, you know, the hotelers. See what happens. I always like to say, Cliff, the reason we've been able to sustain this because right out of the, our humble beginnings, this was never just Zender success. See, when you have an event that makes everybody around you or everybody involved with it just as successful, however they're defining that success, they're going to participate. But if this had always started out to be something that only Zender is benefiting from, that doesn't work. Right. And so our mindset, but that's just, that's franking for you, Cliff. This is a community that has always worked well together. And so Snowfest is no exception. And so we were just able to kind of just make this bigger and all around us. So, you know, we can't do this without hotels donating rooms to put up, put the carvers up. But they're willing to do it because they're selling out. They know they wouldn't be successful without the event. So they're more than happy to help us in any way, shape or form. And then what and I've never started out and as it grew, I never got to the point and people always ask me like, oh, you want to be the biggest. I've never wanted to be the biggest in this venture, but I've always told people I wanted to have this to be one of the highest quality events in North America. And so Pete Rumsey, who was really in charge of helping us get the carvers in the beginning, was telling us, I'm going to get you the best carvers that do this. And then because this is Frankenmuth and we know for our hospitality, the gimmick, as we like to say, the carvers were blown away how well they were treated. So then they start making decisions because these people are taking off from their jobs right. for a week. This is how they're spending their vacation, but they love the treatment, what we gave them. So now they start making decisions. And I've had people tell me, I only go to one or two shows now. Okay. But if I'm going to go to one, you're always the one on my list. <laughs> so we became the premier snow sculpting event for the carvers because they love the way the hospitality, they love the treatment that received when they were in Frankenmuth. Not just from Zenders, but from everybody. You were and they were blown away by that. You were talking about growing and just to get some get my head around a couple some numbers here, you know, at its peak, uh, before this whole COVID thing kicked in, how many people actually come to Snowfest? At its peak traditionally, and I'm gonna give you a range. And I'm okay. gonna tell you and the peak of it is obviously the weekend. But we have estimated that we literally have about 150,000 people annually. Wow. Yeah. We've actually been on the Today Show. Willard Scott was live from Zender Snowfest, I think 1996, for doing the weather segment right here in our, right in our driveway here. Nice. And that happened strictly because at the time, TV5 WNEM was the NBC affiliate. And WEYI was the CBS affiliate, and they flip flop. And so, so EYI was looking looking for something, and it just happened to be in January, and they were looking for something to kind of a big event to um, to signal that they were now an NBC affiliate. And I'll never forget the station manager calling me. His name escapes me, but he ended up going to uh, a station in Buffalo, so that's why I recall the story. He called and said, "Hey, would it be possible?" He asked. I go, well, let me think. He asked, would it be possible that Willard Scott 
can come to Smokefest. Oh, yeah. At no cost. I'm like, well, hold on one second. Oh, yeah, I think we can make that happen for you. And so that's how Willard Scott (laughs) was here. Willard Scott was here because EYI went from a CBS affiliate to an NBC affiliate, and they were trying to make a big splash in the marketplace. And so the time of year happened to be in January. There's not much going on in January. And so Snowfest was an easy, easy venue for him to come to. And he was great. And it was fantastic. I mean, think about it. We're live on the Today Show with Willard Scott here in little old Frankenmuth. It was yeah, crazy. Nothing like yeah. uh, nothing like having access to a nationwide audience. And yeah. So that just kind of, and then other things would just kind of fall in our lap, in our lap, Cliff. But the reason I think it's been, yeah, I think we put on a great show, but our competition is minimal. What else is going on in January? Nothing. I mean, you're going to obviously, yeah, you can go your skiing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not for like the summertime. We know there's so many other activities. There's so many other festivals that people can choose for. It's just limited this time of year and people want to get out. And so we, you know, so we ended up, you know, doing it in January last year. We've kind of fluctuated. We only had to move it twice. And that was because in 2001, with 9-11 the super bowl was delayed and oh, so yes and, right so then that kind of that we had to kind of and it fell on the same weekend of Snowfest, and it was really kind of like made for a very very soft sunday so we realized we're not trying to compete against the super bowl so literally what i started doing is like let me see when the next 15 super bowls are slated for and so we've actually figured out it works out ideally that we're the week. We're always the last weekend in January, which tends to be the weekend before the Super Bowl, and so that's how that that's how that date really came about. That we didn't move it. Nice. We just kind of etched in stone. So and people kind of and yeah, I was just kidding. You know, people just people just always enjoyed it, and people just say thank you. And you know, like I said, the warming tent, and we've we've made adjustments to warming tent. We've really made it now. It's warm, and we figured out how to keep it warmer. Put the hay down. We just learned, and what we really got really good at a setup. I mean, as I said, I told you that first snow fest took us two weeks to do like eight, eight or nine blocks. We right. can do literally 60 snow blocks in probably five days. Nice. Yeah. So we had, you know, we could, we still have the original cubes or blocks. We call them that it was Tim Zender, Bavarian builder. And some of the carvers taught us like, Hey, you need to do this, make it this. And so we just took their advice. And Tim build Tim Zender said, I tell you what, John, you buy the supplies, we'll donate the labor. And that was back in like 1992 or 93. And we still had the same blocks. But then we then we tried once we we put the we figured out how to lift it up with a crane, but it was real kind of hard that first year. So then Scott Watkins, our superintendent of the golf course and our setup director, he decided to put a liner inside the box and then they slid right off. So we just kind of got smarter. As we went along, we became more efficient. We used to bag each block to keep the sun off of them. And then we got with Downing and they go, hey, we have a lot of scraps. Why don't we create uh, covers for you? And so instead of you trying to wrap it around and taking you hours to do it. So we said, okay, we'll buy covers. And we put covers on it. Now that process takes us five minutes. Uh, And, you know, the first three years we were counting on Mother Nature. and, And Mother Nature doesn't always come through. And so we decided we partnered one year, that year with Mount Holly. Long, uh, the reality is they had a old snow gun that they sold to us and allowed us to buy it over a two year period. We still have that same snow gun. 
because now, you know, after that third, third or fourth year, and we were scraping up parking lots and uh, creating these snow blocks, the economic benefit was too high. And so we were like, man, we really don't want to lose this opportunity and risk it by not having snow. Right. So we started adding ice to it, but we were like, okay, how do we do this? So we tried to take mother nature out of the picture by creating our own snow. So what we need from mother nature is cold temperatures. Typically in January, she comes through. Yes. So we figured out how to make snow. So we start moving and the carvers like that. They go, Hey, there's not a, there's not, there's no dirt in there. And we kind of like that. So they liked it. It was a win-win. It helped me sleep a little bit better at night. I'm not worrying about if we're going to have snow. I just worried at that time yeah. about cold temperatures and we make the snow. So that became one of those. Okay. We got to have, make sure we have the snow gun and make sure we have parts for it. And so we use it once a year. And so that worked out for us. So we just learned during the, we learned during the, this, this period of time, and I was always open-minded to new ideas and new concepts. So I never said no to anything and, and, and was always willing to take advice and try things. And it just worked out. Yeah, that seems to be a recurring theme in this podcast episode is, you know, embracing new, but also, too, is uh, the theme of continuous improvement. I do want to spend a couple minutes talking about this year for 2021. With, sure. with COVID and, and what is going on, what is, you know, what is the status of Snowfest? What are you guys doing? What are precautions that you're taking? Uh, share a little bit with us about that. Okay. As we started our planning, we always start planning around August. And obviously in the middle of a pandemic, the first discussion that are we even going to try to do this? And what we're getting a lot of feedback from community people, like if anything possible, would you please, because you know, we're trying to get back to quote unquote, as normal as, as we can be, as can be, and it's been a tough year. So we decided that we're going to try to do it. And but first and foremost, every discussion we've had, Cliff, is we have to figure out how to do we how to how to do this safely. And really, we came down to the conclusion to have any opportunity to really do it safely, we cannot encourage this mass gathering of people. So with that in mind, we knew we couldn't do the warming tent. We knew we couldn't have fireworks. We really knew that, well, in, in essence, we can't schedule anything. So the thought process is, and as we move forward is, let's create a mini winter wonderland with 10 snow blocks, and we're gonna end up probably having about 60 ice carvings. So between the Bavarian Inn parking lot and Zender's parking lot, we can create the um, 75 block ice display make that a little interactive. People can take pictures. So we're thinking, how do we social distance? How do we keep it safe? So in essence, we've almost gone back to our humble beginnings when we knew, when we didn't know what we were doing and had, as I said, originally nine snow blocks and nine carvings, we're going to have 10 snow blocks. And as I mentioned, about 50 to 60 ice carvings. And we want people to come at their leisure from January 29th, starting at noon to Sunday, January 31st. So we condensed the days. So instead of trying to have a seven-day event, we're having a three-day event. And it's literally for people to have an opportunity to get outside, get some fresh air, and take a look at this, what we feel is awesome, larger-than-life snow sculptors and ice carvings. And it looks like we're going to find out from the governor today, the rumor is that we're going to be able to have in-room dining starting February 1st. So obviously that doesn't help during Snowfest. So we're going to still be in a takeout mode. We do have a tent outside now that's heated, but the flaps are open. 
that seat about 50 people for your their own convenience. So literally, come to Frankenmuth, walk around, visit the shops, stop by the, any of the restaurants, get takeout, and enjoy the the artwork. That's in essence what we're able to do in a a a, a COVID nineteen pandemic snowfest. Nice. And if anybody's listening to this episode and they want to get up to the date information on you know, Snowfest or maybe activities that are happening on, on certain days, what would be the best way for them to do that? You can go to zenders.com, www.zenders.com, or you can call us 800-863-7999, 800-863-7999. Uh, those are the best two ways to get the up-to-date information of what what, what we anticipate for Snowfest 2021 we still have the you know, a lot of people have traditionally bought our Snowfest pen. We have those on available online to purchase right now with our Snowfest. Typically every year we do like a Snowfest sweatshirt and we have people that collect those. So we'll still have that available for sale as well. So I like to think of it as this 2021 is more of like Snowfest light. Okay. So it was just a decision that we didn't want to just cancel it all together. We just looked at Cliff elements of Snowfest that we felt we could do in a safe manner. And it really came down to the snow sculptors and the ice carvings. It's not a competition. The snow sculptors will actually be arriving on January 25th. They'll have that week to get all the artwork done. So literally that weekend, come and just look at the, the, the display of the artwork. Nice. Is what Snowfest 2021 will be. That's the best way we felt to keep it safe. Again, we didn't want to have anything particularly scheduled for a certain time because we thought that might encourage people gathering. And that's really what we're trying to avoid. We want people to come in with their families at their leisure, at their convenience over that weekend and take a look at what was created. And hopefully spend a little time in town, walk around. I think people are itching to get out. I agree. uh, Get a little fresh air, walk around, visit Bronner's, visit the River Place, again, visit the different shops. And whether you spend an hour or three hours, I think it's just an opportunity for people to have a chance. We want it to be an opportunity, Cliff, that people can spend a little family time together. Nice. That sounds absolutely great. And for our audience, we'll have uh, the links to everything in the show notes down below. John, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It was it was great uh, chatting with you and uh, getting that history on, on Snowfest. Well, thank you, Cliff, for the opportunity. And again, uh, wish you well with your podcast. Uh, send me links. I'll, I'll, I'll become one of your followers. How's that? That sounds awesome. I love it. <laughs> yeah, appreciate what you're doing. And uh, again, I appreciate the opportunity to reach out to your audience. And I want to thank our sponsors who make this happen. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to come across it as this is something that Senders is doing. We can't do this alone. And we've been very blessed over the last 30 years they have a lot of corporate business sponsorships, a lot of support from our community, uh, a lot of support from Michiganders just coming to visit and tell us and telling us that uh, they appreciate what we're doing. And that, to me, it goes a long way. That's very rewarding to hear people that say, hey, we look forward to it. And it's been very rewarding for me, Cliff, over the last 30 years to have staff, carvers and visitors say, I've been coming, bringing my kids, and now I'm bringing my grandkids. So to me, that's cool. Nice. Nice. Okay. Thanks, John. Thank you. You have a great day and uh, take care of yourself. As I like to say, stay positive, test negative. I love it. (laughs) 
Hey everyone, if you enjoyed this episode, then subscribe to our email newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get new episode announcements. You'll get all kinds of great behind the scenes information on upcoming guests. Plus, you'll receive special offers from our guests and partners that you can only get through the email newsletter. Subscribing is quick, easy, and best of all, it is free. Just go to callofleadership.com slash email, type in your email address, and you're done. Once again, that's callofleadership.com slash email. I'll catch you in the next episode.